religion. One of the marks of false religion is to fancy man becoming a god. That actually is built into the concept of the Mormon religion, that man can become god, and indeed the god who is now once was a man. But the creator of the universe is not a man. He just isn't. He was never a human being at any time. Um, he's not a creature. Uh, a creature has a beginning uh, and an end, but he doesn't have that. We'd been rehearsing in our Plunging into God course many of the attributes of God. Some of them we share. They're communicable attributes. That is, that um, God is just, and so we should act just. God is loving, so we should act loving. But there are some attributes of God he doesn't communicate or share with his creatures. Creatures just don't have these attributes, these perfections. God is the eternal, unchanging, transcendent spirit. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He's infinite in wisdom. He's self-existing. When people ask who made God, the answer is no one made God. He didn't even make himself because he's not made. He doesn't have a cause because he's an uncaused being. Um, he's self-dependent. He has no needs. He needs no help. He takes no aid from anybody. He doesn't suffer any weaknesses at all. And uh, that's just amazing. When we think about human beings, we think, you know, they're just not like that. Human beings are, are needy, needy beings. We have all kinds of needs. We're kind of seeing that even right now. We have health needs, but God's not like that. Um, man, no matter how great he boasts, he still remains a product of the ground. God took some of the ground and he developed a human being, breathed into that creation, and he became a living being. We return to the dust when we die. That's who we are. You know, evolution is not science. Evolution is a, a false doctrine. The idea that man is going to get greater and greater and evolve out of being a human being to even something greater, that's false teaching. But it fits the pride of man really well. The only thing that's ever going to make us greater is the grace of God, which is not something that we um, have earned or deserve. It's just something God's going to do for us, to glorify us, but we'll still remain glorified human beings. We'll never turn into God. There is an infinite gulf between that which is God and that which is not God. That which is not God will never be God, and that which is God will always be God. And true religion always keeps the boundaries of those things clear. It is shocking, though, and I think you would agree with me on this, how audacious Certain men can be and can speak at times. The boasts that come out of the mouths of mere men rob glory from the Creator and then take that glory and assign it to themselves where it really is out of place. Men boast of what they will accomplish with their money. They boast of what adventures that they will succeed in. They boast of their skills and of their great knowledge. James, in his letter, nails it on the head when he writes in verse 13 and following, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, James writes, is evil. In the face of such arrogance, we may wonder why does God not get angry at man more? Well, such is the nature of God, to be patient, to be long-suffering with the sins of humanity. You know, over and over we read in the Bible the truth that the Lord revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai and it's repeated a number of places. Numbers 14 and verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. That's true of the Lord, yet when it is time for his judgment to fall, when man has been given enough time to consider his proud ways and, and turn away from his haughty spirit, the holy anger of God can be aroused, often is aroused against humanity. And when God's anger is aroused, it comes swiftly 
and it comes dreadfully, and no one can stop it. Such is the case with the New Testament account that we read today in Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25. If you would turn there, that's our text for today, Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25, and I'll read it. Now, this is talking about Herod. Now, Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asked, asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Well, this story comes on the heels of the lesson that God tried to teach King Herod when he delivered the apostle Peter from prison in the previous section. Of course, Herod, being a proud man, did not learn the lesson God was trying to teach him. You know, some men in their vanity and in their conceit, they never learn in this life. And that is why they have to spend eternity under the judgment of God, experiencing the flames of divine anger, because they didn't learn. One sermon that I got to skim related to this passage entitled this section here, God judges a blaspheming Herod and blesses an obedient church. And I think that does capture what Luke is writing here in the greater narrative. As Herod is struck down by the true God of heaven, the church of God is continuing to be advanced here on earth. If you are a lover of the church of Jesus, as I am, this passage is actually an encouragement to your hearts, for it reminds us of the truth in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, that God gave us a very special head to the church. His name is Jesus. He is over all things, and because he's over all things and has all that authority as a gift to the church, um, he is great. We have a great head, beloved, and he does fight for his church. Now here we also learn that creatures are always creatures, even though they might think there's something greater. And the creator is always the creator, praise his name. And God's word will always prevail, no matter what opposition it faces. Really, in this passage, we can see two perspectives. Two perspectives. One is a false perspective, that perspective of Herod's, and the people that praised him in that way, and then the true perspective. So we'll look at those two perspectives today. First, looking at the false perspective call it this, the man who thought he was a God, the man who thought that he was a God. And that's in verses 20 through 22. Would you focus on verse 20 just to begin with? It says there, now he, that is Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. So, Herod is angry, and he's angry against these two cities, Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you check out your maps, you'll see that Tyre and Sidon were two cities on the Mediterranean coast, and they were, at that time, part of the province of Syria. They were self-governing city. These two cities really relied on food that would be delivered to them, often from inland. Well, Herod was in control of that food supply from the inland, and now Herod was angry with these two cities for some reason. And so they're in some way dependent upon Herod's kingdom, you see, and upon Herod. I don't know if you've ever noticed about proud people, but they tend to get very angry when they don't get their way about something. So we just imagine that Herod did not get his way about something. And so uh, he got angry. He got angry at them. That's what proud people do. Herod kind of had economic power over them. And that put these people at a disadvantage. And um, 
they were experiencing the anger of this, this pompous ruler. And so they were trying to figure out, what do we do about that? How do we feed our people? How do we stay on his good side? Well, the people tried to appease King Herod. And to win Herod over, they first went to this man named Blastus, and they tried to win over his support. We really don't know anything about this guy, Blastus, except that he was one of Herod's trusted servants. Indeed, he was something like what we would call a chief of staff, very trusted to handle all of the other servants that uh, ministered to Herod. Uh, Blastus probably was given some kind of a bribe, and he was won over, and so that was the way they tried to win back Herod on their side. Well, as the story is told, on a special day, Herod decided to display his own glory. Again, that's what proud people do. They want to show off their own attributes. They want to show their own qualities. If you look at verse 21, it says, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Well, there is Herod's vainglory. And it's seen in what he did. He puts on this very fancy royal apparel. Then he takes his seat on the rostrum, an elevated platform from which to make a speech. And he began delivering his address. All of this was designed to impress. And again, that's another attribute of proud people. They want to impress others. They want to receive the praise of men. Now, there is a Jewish historian named Josephus who wrote History of the Jews for the sake of the Romans, and he tells of this very same event. And by the way, that's another reminder of many we've had as we've marched through the book of Acts, that Luke is an accurate historian, and at certain times it touches with what we know from archaeology or from other sources of history, and here is an example. In Josephus's Antiquity of the Jews, in chapter 19, he wrote this about Herod in A.D. 44, quote, Now when Agrippa, that was Herod, had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Tower. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity through his province. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illumined by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon it. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature." And upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. In other words, Josephus agrees. They were crying out, he, his is the voice of a God and not of a man. And he had this very fancy silver threaded garment on that when the early morning sun hit it, they were just amazed at his appearance there. It was an outdoor theater. It's interesting that it was actually his grandfather that built that theater. So the people were essentially calling him a god, just as Luke summarizes here. And according to Luke, they kept saying it. They knew it would please Herod. They knew they needed to do something to appease his majesty. Again, you know, proud people have to be appeased. They didn't want to face the consequences of not appeasing him, and so they said these words. Now remember, as you think about Herod, that he was not just a king. He was king over the region of Judea and parts of Samaria, in other words, of the Jews. And he knew enough from his father and from his grandfather and some of his upbringing, he knew enough about the Jewish religion to know 
that the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, would get very angry at those who do not worship him or bow down to idols or rob glory from him. Herod knew, in other words, about blasphemy. He knew about these laws the Jews had, and so he had no excuse at all. The Jews were very serious about this law. For example, in the Gospel of John chapter 10 and verse 33, it says this, The Jews answered Jesus, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Now they were rightfully understanding how great Jesus' claims were for himself, that Jesus was indeed claiming to be God, and they heard that, and since they didn't believe Jesus was God, they accused him of blasphemy. Indeed, they were ready to pick up stones and kill Jesus because of these laws that they had. Also, when Jesus forgave the paralytic sins in Mark chapter 2 and verse 7, the response was this, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So even if someone didn't say, I'm God, but they said something that only God would be allowed to say, they understood you're putting yourself in the place of God. That's blasphemy. That's wrong. You're taking glory away from God. Also, honestly, Herod really should have seen the Almighty's strong arm of deliverance in Peter's case, in Peter's escape from prison that we talked about last time. He was surrounded by guards. He was locked in chains. He was behind bars and behind an iron gate. It was all locked up, and he got out, and none of them could figure out how it happened. Herod should have figured that out. He should have known. Ah, but there is another mark of an arrogant man. They refused to bring God into their thinking. They refused to look at life with the divine being part of it. They wanted to dismiss any talk of God. They're arrogant people. Well, he should have known. And he should have known fighting against God was not very wise. But Herod kept thinking, you know, he wanted what he wanted. That's how he lived life. That's how he had always lived life. That's how he was going to die, living life that way. Herod is an illustration of the truth we read about in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 that says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. By taking advantage of God being patient with his sins, Herod actually, by waiting longer and longer and not repenting and living more and more in sin, was actually just piling on top of his own head more and more wrath from God. And so you know what? Herod deserved this judgment. That should be obvious. The blasphemy laws originated in the law of Moses. Later, the prophets of Israel also declared that divine glory belonged only to the one and true living God, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, for example, says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. He alone is the ever-living one. He alone is the self-existent one. He's not going to give his glory to a stick or to a piece of gold that he created. He's not going to give it to another one that he made. He alone deserves the glory. I don't know. When people start bragging about their abilities, isn't that a real turnoff, don't you think? They start bragging about themselves, their might and their power. They do it in subtle ways. You know, they flex their muscles. They show off how good-looking they are. They advertise how generous they are, making sure everybody sees how generous they are. Bragging comes in all kinds of forms. It's all arrogance. It's all pride. It's all out of place in humanity. Well, I like to remind people that are boasting of their power and abilities of something like Psalm 115 and verse 1 that says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, and because of your truth. But here's Herod basking in all the praises of men around that outdoor theater. He was kind of affirming them, liking them. The voice of a God. Yeah, that kind of sounds like me. Keep it going. Keep it coming. 
please understand that you are responsible for the compliments and the accolades and the praises that get directed at you. When somebody says something about you that is clearly beyond what you deserve, you are responsible to correct them. If you go along with it, that is a way of boasting. That is a way of robbing God of glory, just like Herod did right here. If it's too high for you, bring it down immediately. Make sure people know, no, 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 no. I don't get credit for that. First of all, there was this person that was helping me. There was another person that was helping me. And by the way, I couldn't even do this unless God was working in my life. Gee, if you knew me back in the day when I was a pagan, you know I couldn't possibly be doing that. It's very important you do that. Letting people think that you would be a God, a human being. Letting others think you might be a god, even if the idea of the pagan gods is less than what we know of the true God. And many of the pagan gods, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, they, they were really part of creation and all the rest of that. They just seem like superhumans or something like that. But even that is wrong. In fact, I'd like you to keep your finger here in uh, Acts 12 and just flip forward a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 14, because I want you to see how Paul and Barnabas responded when they were called God. Acts chapter 14 and verses 8, well, verses 8 through 10 show about how they healed a lame man and seemed to have powers in themselves. But then you come down to verse 11, and this is where you begin to see how the crowds responded to this great healing that Paul and Barnabas had done. Verse 11 of Acts 14, it says, when the crowds saw What Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then he goes on with his speech. Do you see how beautiful their humility was, their humble example? They did not want to be worshipped. They they didn't want any of that. They knew it belonged to God. They knew the healing was God's power. They knew apart from God, they were nothing. That's, That's a great example of humility. They faced that temptation and handled it well. They were adamant, glory goes to God, not to them. In contrast to that is Herod's example. Bring it, bring it a little more. This is very nice. I'd like some more. In the end times, the Antichrist is going to rise up and he's going to boast great things. Now, some, some people who boast are very loud in their boasting. It appears when the Antichrist begins, it may be more subtle. He may be a little more smooth in the way that he shows his arrogance. But as time goes on, he's going to want more and more outward and clear worship. And he's going to blaspheme God's name more and more because he can't stand anybody being elevated above himself because he is the man of sin, man characterized by sin. In Revelation 13, 5, it says there was given to the Antichrist a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months, that's three and a half years, was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. We need to imitate the humble examples around us. We need to not let the devil's way of thinking and his pride that's going to be on display in the Antichrist affect our thinking. We should not act like the arrogant king or any politician or any celebrity who accepts great titles titles like Messiah or these celebrities that try to show about how generous and kind they are and how much money they give to this and that, but they want to make sure you know all about it. They want to make sure you know of their greatness. It's another way of boasting. It's frankly despicable. 
In James 4, verse 6, I remember going through and preaching this passage, and it's such a wonderful passage for understanding how to live before God and receive His blessing. It simply says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives His grace to the humble. If you want grace, if you want additional help and aid from God in your Christian life, then humble yourself because God actively opposes the proud. Humility invites the favorable power of God. Pride invites the opposition of God. Jesus put the same truth another way in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be what? Humbled, right? And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Actually, the term humble has to do with being lowered. Tapinas. It means exactly what nobody wants it to mean, to lower yourself, to lower your view of yourself, to lower the words you say about yourself, to lower your concern about yourself, to be of lowly heart, to be of low estate, to be low-minded. If you do not lower yourself, if you do not lower your opinions of yourself, your estimate of yourself, you can't be a humble person. That's where it starts. That's what it means. Humility has to do with lowliness. Romans 12, 16 says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. See, there it is. To be humble, you have to associate with the lowly. Find the lowly. Find those that are not as well exalted in workplace or in church or wherever it may be, and make sure you associate with them. Have them into your home. That's the kind of way of expressing a mind that cares for the lowly. Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Go about your day saying, look, what I do and what I accomplish, that's not as important. I want to live my life to serve the Lord, His church, and other people. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. What did Jesus do? He didn't come into the world saying, Worship me, bow down before me. He came and served men. And now God has people worshiping Him and bowing down before Him. What does a humble-hearted person look like? Well, not like Herod, that's for sure. He associates with the lowly. He does not think highly of himself. He's willing to learn from others. He will not exaggerate his skills. Humble people, you find them on their knees, and you find them begging God for aid. Humble people know of their dependence on God. Humble people don't strut around like a peacock trying to grab all the attention. They don't have swag, as people would say today. They don't talk trash to other people. They don't exalt self. I mean, so much that happens in the musical world and in the athletic world and in the world of acting. It's all about bringing glory to self. It's kind of sad. When someone is truly humble-hearted, then amazing grace appears and helps them. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 1 Samuel 2, 3, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. I think it's actually very hard to humble yourself. The Bible says, humble yourself. It's actually very hard. It's easy to spit out a few humble words to make it sound like you are being humble. Even proud leaders, they can master words that make it sound like maybe they are being humble. Even actresses know how to put on an act of humility. Even arrogant sports personalities can feign just a tinge of humility. But actually, to think of yourself more lowly, that doesn't deserve anything good from God, to think of others as more important than you, 
Well, it takes a lot of the saving work of God in your life. That's exactly what God wants. Do you know that we have a lot more peace? We have a lot more contentment. We have a lot more happiness when we're really humble. If you're always discontent with life as it's given to you, there's a reason for that. There's, a, there's an expectation that you deserve better, and that comes from a spirit of pride. It may not be as high as Herod's. You may not be asking for worship, but there is that spirit of pride there nonetheless. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, verse 2, For my hand made all these things, as he looks at creation, Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. People that read the word of God and handle it carefully and understand its meaning and tremble before it and want to submit to it, that's, that's truly a humble person. Now proud people, on the other hand, are going to find the resistance of God. That's what Herod did in his life. God opposes. He resists those proud in heart. Whatever pride there is in a person, God actively opposes that. God hates pride in a human being. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. You know, the first one that is listed is haughty eyes. You know what that is, that that look of superiority from someone who knows better than you or has more, more in this world than you have. Haughty eyes. God hates it. God opposes it. One day God will destroy it. Pride is the worst human attribute. It's indefensible for a mere creature. It's even less defensible for fallen creatures. The scriptures repeatedly cry pride down. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from God the Father. It's from the world. You know, it is a sin when we turn the things that God has given us into our own reason for boasting. Proverbs 25, 14, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Pride of life saturates this world, frankly. It's everywhere around us. Again, when the Antichrist comes, he's going to express that spirit of the world perfectly, but that doesn't mean that that spirit isn't around and expressing itself to some degree already. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, He, this is the Antichrist again, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Boy, isn't that the spirit of Satan? I will be like God. I will exalt myself to the throne of God. Look at me. I can, I can receive worship. Terrible. Terrible spirit for creatures. God opposes all human pride. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Psalm 94, 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. Look, if we want help, we have to turn to the Lord humbly, not to our own resources. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Well, notice God's opinion of Herod. He didn't go along with that first perspective. We come to the second perspective, and that is the God who showed him he was but a man. The God who showed him he was but a man. Look at verse 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Boom! (laughs) 
Yes, it's true. God is slow to anger, but when his judgment comes, it is swift, shocking, stunning, unstoppable. Herod there was basking in the divine words ascribed to him, and God sent an angel who struck him immediately. And here, like lightning flash, came his judgment. Really, it's like other examples of divine judgment. We read about how long Noah preached, but then when the flood finally came, it came all in one day. We read about the gross homosexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and when their judgment came, it came in one day. Often when the wrath of God comes, it comes fast. Notice this parallel in the text. Don't miss this between Peter and Herod. An angel struck Peter to wake him up and rescue him from prison and from Herod. And an angel struck, same verb used there, struck Herod and he died of worms, according to Josephus about five days later. In other words, he immediately had something in his bowels and his stomach that ate away and ate away until he died very quickly. Well, we look at how fast this virus is spreading and has spread throughout our entire world. And we may ask, is, is this judgment from God? Is this a judgment upon the world? Well, God has multiple reasons for doing things that he does. I wouldn't presume to know uh, all of Almighty's planning. I know that Spike Lee, who said this, that he got it wrong when he said, the earth was angry at us. People may think I'm crazy. He said that I believe it in my heart and soul that we had gone too far and earth said, hold up, we got to change this. Well, I hope all of you know that earth doesn't talk and earth doesn't have a brain and earth doesn't have a will. Earth doesn't know anything. Yeah, I think that's nuts. Earth is not our creator. Earth is created. There is no mother earth. There is only father God. And so that, to think that is blasphemy. It attributes to the creation the praise due only to the creator. And that's crazy. It's as crazy as thanking a picture for painting itself. It's as crazy as thanking a, a sculpted thing for sculpting itself or an airplane for building itself. If the virus is a judgment, that judgment comes from the Lord our God the maker of heaven, and yes, the maker of earth. Have you not read Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and what? The earth. The earth is a created thing, not thinking, not sensible. Yes, God still does bring his wrath upon earth. It says so in Romans 1.18, for the, la the wrath of God is, is revealed, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Assigning divine attributes to the earth is blasphemy. Look how God decided to bring his judgment upon Herod at this time. It says, an angel of the Lord. You wonder what angels are doing there. Did an angel actually start the virus? Was this from God? Well, I don't know. But you see that angels are working all the time. Sometimes they work to deliver. Sometimes they work to bring God's judgment. Um, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will harden whom he hardens. That's the prerogative of the judge of all the earth. His judgments are always righteous and just. If God is using this to bring some people to Christ, bless his name. If God is using this to bring fear upon the world, bless his name. If God is using this to project humanity forward towards the end times, bless his name and whatever he does. An angel of the Lord last time delivered a saint. This time he judges a sinner. Stephen J. Cole, a retired pastor and a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, who I read his expositional sermon on this text online, he wrote this, Herod's glory was short-lived and his misery is eternal. Even the Antichrist and the false prophet will only enjoy three and a half years of glory before God casts them into the lake of fire where Satan himself will end up. All who never submitted to God will be thrown into that cauldron to be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Revelation 19, 20, and Revelation 20, verse 10, and verse 15, end quote. You know, Herod killed Jesus' representative named James. And Herod blasphemed God's nature, and so God killed Herod. Is that right? You bet that's right. How dare anybody correct God for his judgment? That too is arrogance. S. Lewis Johnson, in his expository sermon of this paragraph, called this action sovereign retribution. That's what it is. Sovereign retribution. Rise up, O Lord, and carry out your vengeance, as the psalm says. And indeed, that's what he did. He brought his vengeance upon a sinner. Herod wanted glory. He suffered five days, a very painful and shameful death, and then he slipped into the next life in the Hades where he suffers, awaiting his court date and the everlasting fires of hell. Herod did not give God the glory. That's a sin. That's a bad sin. I don't know, sometimes when people think about homardiology, and I think we'll have a class on that coming up sometime soon, they don't think right about sin. Sometimes we evangelicals, we say, you know, all sins are the same. They're not all the same. They're all the same in the sense that they're all bad. They're all the same in the sense, in the sense that they, they make us liable and guilty before the throne of God and can bring us to hell. That's true. They're all bad. But they don't all receive the same measure of God's judgment. They're all distasteful to God, but some are even more revolting to God. The worst sins are not man's sins against man. You know why? Because man's not the greater being. God's the greater being. The, the, the worst sins are when man sins against God. Why do you think the first of the commandments that are listed in the 10 are sins against God? Why do you think the greatest commandment in all the Bible is not love your fellow man, but love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because God's greater and sins against him are worse. Sins like blasphemy. Sins like idolatry. Sins like taking God's name in vain. You know, in Romans 1, it's a fascinating passage. It talks about how God revealed himself through creation, and there's man, and he looks at the creation, and rather than seeing the, the clear message from creation that there's an omnipotent God who's wise and that we're accountable to and put us on this planet, they push and suppress that knowledge, and they say, you know what? We're going to worship what we see. We're going to worship <coughs> the creation rather than the creator. And so God says, you know, that's very foolish. And he allows man to continue down that pathway of foolishness. And he actually judges his thinking. And his mind becomes darker and darker. And he no longer can see. And everything gets reversed. Everything he should think, he can no longer think. Even in his own sexuality as it goes on. He can't figure out, I'm a male. And my attraction should be for a female. Or I'm a female. And my attraction should be for a male. That's how bad his thinking gets. Completely reversed. But the fascinating thing about Romans 1 is that the worst sins, the beginning sins, are not the sins where man is hurting his fellow man, like homosexuality, like greed, like murder, like rape, like hostility, like envy, like jealousy. No, those are sins of unrighteousness. Before the sins of unrighteousness, there's a more foundational and a worse sin, and they're sins of ungodliness. There are sins where God is pushed out of the thinking, where God is changed into a created being. And those are worse sins. And they're sins that God treats much more severely. False worship precedes false and bad behavior. False religion is proud and robs God of glory. You know, it's only the patience of God that keeps the proud religionist person out of hell as he waits patiently for them to repent. Well, God struck him simply for not giving God the glory. So yes, illnesses can come directly from God as judgment on unbelievers. And thus he was eaten by worms and he died. God gave this man the death penalty. He took his life. God's the giver of life. He can take it. It's his. 
You know, he declared war against Almighty God, and that's rather foolish. Who's going to win a battle against someone who's almighty? No one ever wins a war against El Shaddai, God Almighty. Listen, if you're listening today and you have not surrendered your life to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, you should do that today because you're being arrogant by holding back and hanging on to your own life. God has given you the terms of your surrender. Believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God will pardon you for your arrogance and for your fighting against Him. He will do more than pardon you. He will adopt you into His family and bless you beyond your belief. What incredible terms of surrender He has offered to you. There couldn't be better terms of surrender if you'll do it now before He strikes you and judges you. If you persist in your insanity, well, Hell will be your eternal abode. Why choose hell like Herod? What did he get out of that? When the promise of paradise is offered to all of God's enemies who will surrender and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe the virus is here to humble man. I think it's having that effect with some people. Ray Stedman preached on this passage and he said, the great tragedy of the American nation is that more often than not, in a sense, we are saying to God, please God, I'd rather do it myself. We want to do it all ourselves. But God strikes oftentimes to remind us that our very life, our very breath, all that we have and are is coming from Him and that we are fools to think that we can exist and live, act and react on our own. That we have some power of our own apart from Him that we can operate on. This episode shows how blinded, how distorted, how tragically twisted becomes the thinking of men who depart from a sense of dependence on God, end quote. Well, in contrast to Herod's fate, please notice that Luke points out that in verse 24, God's word, that is the gospel, the truth of the Bible, God's word grew and God's word multiplied. Verse 24, but, here it dies, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Herod bit the dust. Herod was thrown on the pile of dead corpses for history. His life accomplished nothing, but the word of the Lord continued to grow. Hallelujah. Listen, the Word of God is what Hope Bible Church is all about. We are all servants of the Word. Either we stand here and submit ourselves to the Word, study it and preach it, or we're out there helping with technology, or we're spreading the Word in our evangelism, or we're encouraging a brother with the gift of exhortation with the Word, or we're exemplifying the Word in our servant's attitude and heart towards other people. We're all servants of the Word of God. We teach it. We spread it. We bow before it. We do what it says. In Acts 12, it didn't just grow. Please notice it multiplied. You know, when God's word spreads to one heart, it can spread to a dozen more hearts. If one person accepts the gospel and now it grows in that heart, well, how many more is that person in his life going to tell? Could be hundreds or thousands. The COVID-19 virus spreads and multiplies, we're told, very fast. It brings sickness It brings death. God's word spreads faster and more powerfully. It brings health. It brings everlasting life. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. We have that same word in our hearts, in our church, in our Bibles right now. And as the word multiplied, please notice the church of Jesus flourished. Verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. That sets us up for chapter 13, where we're going to read about how that church in Antioch was praying and fasting, and God gave them a mission and launched Paul's first missionary journey to the Gentiles. Again, we say Herod was killed. That ended the persecution, at least for a while, for the church in Jerusalem. Those poor believers got a break. Herod is dead. The offering that was collected among the Gentile church that was delivered to the Jews in Jerusalem now cared for them. 
It was handled well. It was delivered faithfully. They had the help, and the church was now growing even there. I think this all goes back again to the praying church and the obedient church, that prayer meeting, that corporate prayer meeting that we read about last time. I think we're supposed to see the power of God working on behalf of the church and setting the church up for growth. Even while mighty men of the world fight against God, they lose, but the church goes forward and the word goes forward. Warren Wearsby writes, the early church had no political clout or friends in high places to pull strings for them. Instead, they went to the highest throne of all, the throne of grace. They were a praying people for they knew that God could solve their problems. God's glorious throne was greater than the throne of Herod and God's heavenly army could handle Herod's weak soldiers any day or night. The believers did not need to bribe anyone at court. They simply took their case to the highest court and left it with the Lord. And what was the result? The word of God grew and multiplied. And that sets us up again for the growth of the church that we're going to read about in Antioch. We are mere creatures, beloved, and as mere creatures, also born again into the family of God, we need to appeal to God to work powerfully, not be fearful of evil leaders, but always teach what is right. There's God, and then there is creation, and there's a great gulf between them, and there always will be. And as creatures, all we can do is praise and honor the Creator and live to His glory, and that's how it ought to be. Give Him the glory. Reflect back to Him the glory. Yes, let your light shine before men, but only in such a way that God the Father may receive the glory. Amen? Father, thank You for this word that reminds us who gets the glory. Thank You for the hymns and spiritual songs we can sing that give You the glory. Oh, Lord, help us to be aroused of spirit and to sing with all of our might. To you alone belongs the glory. All hail the power of Jesus' name. What a, what a great hymn, Lord. Assist us as we sing now. Amen.